Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for this new episode of The Corner. Uh, today, we have the pleasure to welcome Chris Schlosser from the MLS. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. Good to see you. And for us to be uh, well joined, there is the, the one and only CEO of La Source, Sam. What an introduction. Uh, <laughs> great to be here with you guys, JB and Chris. No, no, but I'm super happy that you are on this podcast because... It will be your pleasure to remind all of our audience and all our listeners that your player is playing in MLS. So that's something that you can be proud of, I think. So, Well, if you're not fans of Toronto FC, go check the website out. What a team, what a club, uh, what a league. <laughs> Especially for 2021, right? Great start. <laughs> they're they're going to get there. They're going to get there. A lot of okay, people pick so, them to, to win early in the year, so we, we shall see how it goes. Transformation is coming. Yeah, actually, you know what? One of the good things about MLS is competitive balance. Like Northern American leagues, I've understood that in terms of how you make sure you're competitive and that every year you don't know who's going to be the winner. So fingers crossed for your brother, uh, Sam. <clears throat> um, but let's jump right into it, Chris. Uh, we're not here to talk about Sam's brother or what he's doing. Uh, for our audience, we'd like to start with a bit of presentation of yourself, not maybe the the academic background, but prior to the MLS, what you were doing um, and the different roles you've been having as well. Uh, I know you started around the internet boom uh, around MSN, but can you, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, my first job really was a double click, actually. Um, in New York, uh, just as the internet advertising world was starting, it was fun. They had a, an amazing when was that? penthouse. Uh, that was in 2002, I guess, 19, 2001, 2002. And they had an amazing penthouse in New York with a roof deck overlooking all the city. And I spent two summers working for them, which was just phenomenal, a lot of fun. Um, when I graduated, I went and worked for Microsoft out in Seattle um, in a whole number of roles in their MSN division, the last of which was uh, flying around the world and setting up different internet uh, or digital sales teams in different countries for Microsoft, um, which was just, you know, again, really interesting, a lot of fun, very early days of the internet boom. And then um, went and got my MBA. And as uh, I was finishing up my MBA, uh, I've been a lifelong soccer fan and went and sat in Sunil Galati's office for you know some career advice and said, I'd really love to get involved in the soccer thing. Um, he told me, no, no, you, you have an MBA. Don't do that. You, know, you'll, you'll, you won't make any money. Go do something else. And I said, no, I, I, you know, I'm really interested. I like this. I pitched uh, the commissioner on an idea to start a digital business and to roll up um, all of soccer in the U.S. in one digital business. And I guess he liked the idea, so he hired me uh, to write the business plan. 
And then uh, when I graduated, they they hired me full time uh, as the first ever digital employee of the league. That was in uh, 2008. Wow. And I've been and, and before, uh, before you jump into it, before you jump into it, Chris, why soccer? I mean, on this podcast, we will use soccer or football. We are not referring to American football is just purely soccer, but you are American, right? Usually when you talk to an American, soccer is not the number one. I mean, it's changing clearly, but why soccer? I played it growing up. I loved it. Um, it's always been my favorite sport from, you know, six or seven all all through. I played other sports. I played baseball. I ran track. I played basketball. I dabbled in American pointy ball um, for a little bit. But I, you know, I always gravitated back to soccer. Um, I could always run really well. And so mm-hmm. I think it it was, um, you know, natural for me to, to gravitate to to soccer. And then World Cup 94, I mean, right in the middle of all of growing up, we had this amazing event in the U.S. that you know showed just what a what an amazing world's game it was. Uh, we had our team that was tremendous, and you know that that really spurred the love for the sport. Okay, I see. And so, going back to what you were about to say is like, so 2008, first digital employee within the MLS. What? what? <laughs> Blank page, I guess. <laughs> Well, yeah, at that point, uh, Major League Baseball actually ran our website. They did all of our content. We we had nothing in-house. We had outsourced everything to, to, to the baseball. MLB. To MLB, yeah. No. To an early, in it, yeah, it was an early version of BAM that was doing it. Mm. Um, and so we we took a look and you know we said, hey, if, we're, if we want to be serious, we, we have to start investing. And so we put together a plan and got a whole bunch of investment and built up our staff and eventually took everything in house and built a you know full content team all the normal capabilities that that you might expect um you know writers videographers highlight editors um designers developers the the whole nine yards and so um by about 2010 2011 we had we had pulled everything in house so it wasn't instant it, it took a long time uh mm-hmm. these transitions are are never easy and we we learned a lot along the way i mean we I'll never forget the first website we launched. We hit go and we thought everything was great. We got to the first game and none of the live data worked. I mean, none of it. None. Like the <laughs> scoreboard wouldn't update. The match center wouldn't update. Just nothing would work. Welcome for to digital, months, right? <laughs> for months, the only way we could get the scoreboard to update was to have a guy literally go into the source code and update the source Leaking. code. And if he... Yeah put a, a comma in the wrong place, the whole site would crash. And that was, you know, so it would be 11 o'clock at night, there'd be a game going on and we'd call out, oh, goal in whatever, LA. And all of us would be going crazy about what a cool goal it was. And our d- developer in the corner was, you know, cursing because he he knew he had to update the scoreboard and <laughs> he didn't want to crash the whole site. So we, we've come a long way from uh, those early days. Okay. And then, so 2011, 2012, and then you were, is it? So then I guess as much as that was working after 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 a while, after some years, I guess the portfolio expanded or that now it's it's going broader. So where where have you been like developing or what are the new activities that you've been having since since then? Uh, is it still solely on digital or do you have like o- other areas that you are taking care of now at the MLS? Yeah, in 
while I still oversee our digital business, um, I spend a lot more of my time on our media partnerships, um, how we broadcast our games, and then um, new initiatives for the league, which recently has meant a lot of time on sports betting, okay. NFTs, some of those things. So it's it's a much broader permit purview today than um, where it was originally. So it started with digital, but now you can say that you have three pieces. So the digital part still, media partnerships and the new revenue streams or the new digital products around betting or NFTs or anything new coming up. Correct. Uh, yeah. Yes, Sam? Yeah, I was going to ask what falls into the media partnerships, like in terms of locally, I guess, in the U.S. market and internationally. So the way, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. The way the MLS's rights are structured Um, in the U.S., about 100 games a year are broadcast on national television, uh, ESPN, Fox, Univision, um, and that's true every year. The other games in the market are broadcast locally via uh, some local affiliate, usually like the local CBS or the local Fox. TV. Um, you know, over-the-air television will, will be the, the partner in broadcast. Sometimes it's an RSN. And then out of market, they're streamed um, on ESPN Plus as a as part of ESPN's direct to consumer offering, um, and that's in the U.S. And then internationally, outside the U.S., um, there's all sorts of partners in in different parts of the world. Sometimes it's ESPN, sometimes it's BN, sometimes it's DAZN. Um, we have a whole wide range of of different partnerships. And then in addition to that, so that's kind of our core live game business. Mm -hmm. But then over the last uh, three or four years, we've really built up a roster of just purely digital partners as well who have highlights. highlight rights yeah. or premium content rights or um, you know, the ability to, to, to create other things. And you know, that's the Twitters of the world, Bleacher Report, um, Overtime, Twitch, those kind of people. So how do you come to slice, I mean, before it was kind of a all bundled. So how do you come to slice those rights? Is that the MLS? I mean, are you leading this or is it with, with the commissioner, with Dan Garber? Is it, is it with the marketing team as well? Is, how do you come to the, to the position where you say, all right, we have our live sports and media rights deal, which are the biggest, but you know what? we can maximize also the, the exposure or we can maximize potentially the sales through highlights, through some premium content. How does, it, how does this come to, to fruition? So the first deals that always get done are the big live rights deals, right? Yeah. The, the actual broadcast deals. And for us, the, the last round of those deals was done in 2015 and run 2016 and they actually all end at the end of our 22 season so we're in the middle of trying to figure out what that future looks like but the first thing you do is you, you go cut those live deals in any market around the the world and then once you have those the league retains certain rights we retained you know certain highlight rights certain footage rights the ability to go create you know long-form documentaries those kind of things and once you have the 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 live game's in a good spot, then you have an opportunity to go talk to folks and say, all right, what else can we do? And, you know, mm. like a Twitter, for example, actually does broadcast a game of the week for us um, in English, which is, which is kind of interesting, but largely they want to talk about highlight clips or other kinds of content, similar bleacher report, bleacher report really wanted the ability to go create premium content for their channels. 
And so we, you know, negotiated their access to stadiums, sort of talk to players or for the behind the scenes, right? Exactly. All those kind of things. And actually one question behind that, because that makes a lot of sense, right? That's the low hanging fruit business that everybody knows to go sell the rights. Have you ever thought of going the other way around because there was a shift of balance in terms of what you needed through those media partners and in terms of the visibility it created and the potential ROI? Like, has it, have you, are you close to the point where you might reconsider selling first the, the linear feed to broadcasters in that typical model? Or is it still a much better source of income for an organization like the MLS that makes it a no-brainer to keep going with this model for the moment? I think your your live your long-form live rights will always be your most premium. Mm-hmm. What's changing is what platforms and what the experience is around that long form live content, right? Historically, that was your cable provider, your um, legacy over the air network, those kind of things. More and more as we're having conversations, you know, over the last several years, it's just as much about streaming as it is about, you know, cable distribution or satellite distribution. And I think for for the future, you'll still want cable and satellite distribution. We're, I don't think we're we're ready to say, hey, we'll just go purely digital. But certainly, there's a much broader lens that we're looking through in terms of, you know, how do we all consume media and what are the the right experiences around that. What's also really interesting is we're starting to see interactivity come into a lot more of the conversation, right? The first phase of streaming was you kind of took what was on TV, you ran it through an encoder, and then you just delivered it via some sort of digital pipe. Now, you know, Twitch has really been at the forefront of this, but there there are many other platforms working on it. There are people building all sorts of interactive experiences. um, And we're spending a lot of time, for example, thinking about interactive sports betting experiences and what that might look like. And it's that delivered via that, an app? Is that delivered via your cable box? Is that delivered via you know something else uh, in the future? That was kind of my next questions around. So you were thinking around kind of uh, personalized or interactive or immersive type of experience based on the uh, the telco feed or the live sports. But what what is really driving for you, like? You mentioned also the NFTs, which is in a way some kind of a reward for the fans. So just a broader questions in terms of like interactivity or two-way things. It's not just you sending an image and a signal, but rather allowing the fans to actually potentially engage and have an impact not on the game, but during the live stream. So what are the priorities for you? Like, okay, we've moved from linear to digital. That was the first step, but nothing very much different. How do you see that trend changing? And I don't know if you see that coming in my questions, but I know you were one of the first leagues in in football to to start working as well with Second Spectrum to a certain extent. Uh, so how do you th- how do you see like first the, the next gen of, of viewership of of podcasting, but also the what what are the most important things to look at for the digital um, platforms? Well, let me take a step back just help explain for the listeners what MLS's positioning is in the in the marketplace and who our fans are, because that will help inform some of the, mm-hmm. the conversation about what we're doing. 
we see ourselves really as the home of innovation in global football. We, we see ourselves as the league that can push the envelope and perhaps do things a little differently than, you know, some of the, the, the leagues in Europe or, or elsewhere. Um, and, and we're excited about that. You know, we have the youngest fans in American pro sports. Um, our viewers are significantly younger than, you know, MLB for, for example. Mm -hmm. And as, as having the youngest fans in, in American sports, uh, they expect us to push the envelope, right? Our, we have more Gen Z consumers than, than any of the other leagues. We have a significantly more Hispanic audience than any of the other leagues. Um, you know, our fans, if you look at any of the research, they're more likely to stream. They're more likely to be heavy mobile users. They're more likely to own crypto. They're more likely to be mobile sports betters. They're more likely to so you're no, the best platform to test all the kind of new stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> for us, if we're not innovating, what are we doing, right? Like we have to lean in because our, our, our fans expect it. I mean, and if you think about the history of sports, radio really built baseball, right? If you think back to when they really got their growth, that was based on radio broadcasts. TV built the NBA and the NFL, and they really came up in the television era. And soccer in, in North America is really coming up natively in the digital era. And so we kind of are the first digitally native sport that's been growing based on the internet. You know, you asked me, well, why soccer? Part of the reason why I could get into soccer is the internet was just coming up when I was paying attention. And so I could actually find news and information about what was going on in the sport around the world. And it wasn't just what was on, you know, sports center that, that I could consume. I could actually go out and find things that were interesting to me. And that was really the first time that soccer was available in the United States because mainstream media back then in the nineties didn't ever really cover soccer. Mm. And so we, we needed the internet to come along in order for the sport to grow in North America. So I use that framing just as a way of understanding kind of who our consumers are and why we, we spend time thinking about these kind of things. Oh, that's great. And I mean, we know each other for, for quite a while now. So uh, I think what you're doing is great at the MLS level. Maybe it's not as, in terms of reputation from a pure European perspective, it's because the brand, the players are quite high profile in Europe. So we tend not to look at it or we look at more the NBA. But I can say that the MLS has a very strong I mean that's that that that's something we will touch upon like a bit later in the in the discussion. But going back to the second spectrum and the different moves in terms of partnerships, how you've been building this kind of new digital experience for those younger fans? So, you know, we we had all of this, all these amazing plans in in 2020. Obviously, it was a, a fascinating year with um, uh, the pandemic uh, threw us for a loop. Um, but in some ways, it allowed us to test things that we never would have tested otherwise. Like, what? Um, yeah. for example, example? Yeah. yeah, in our tournament in um, Orlando, we decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put the audio live for the ref when he's talking to the video uh, replay official. We're going to put that on the broadcast. And we're just going to try it. And that was interesting. We thought it was phenomenal. Our fans thought it was phenomenal. Some gentlemen in Switzerland told us to knock it off and send us a cease and desist letter. But 
that's okay, right? We we want to push the envelope in in global football and and think about how do we create new experiences. Similarly, we got all you know we didn't have fans in our stadiums, so that allowed us to to create all new camera angles. We could fly drones over our stadiums where you could never fly a drone over the stadium mm-hmm. if there were fans in the seats, and that provided a, another whole new perspective. We created in Seattle this incredible rail camera that ran the whole length of the field and tracked the ball and, and the player as they were running. And you just got these amazing cinematic shots of the goal buildup from midfield all the way down the field. And the camera's running right in line. Just like a hundred meter. In, in- yeah, it's incredible. And again, you couldn't do that at the right angle if there were fans in the stands. Yeah, I was going to say being probably one of the rare Europeans watching, you know, a lot of MLS and European competitions, what you guys did in terms of innovation compared to the innovation that came to Europe, I mean, beyond Germany, that was probably and that is always one of the leading organizations in terms of innovation, in my opinion, it was much more creative than just trying to populate in some kind of way with graphics that, you know, the, 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 the stadiums, like in certain territories. Um, and I think that younger generations aren't so much about the next camera, right? Which is the old way of thinking of just having one extra camera that will bring a difference. It's about those little things, the microphone for the, for the ref or, you know, feeling closer or hearing what's actually happening is something that we see a lot of value in. So it's no longer about what was thought about by the older generation of linear content, one feed for everyone, but more of, customized, personalized, a bit different that makes you react and actually interact on top of the content. That's 100% the future, right? If we are on a digital platform and we're, we have all the, the benefits of being on IP and digital and, and we can do things, why aren't we building all sorts of user-controlled interactive experiences? If you look at streaming, today, the best streaming experiences really still are taking something that was produced for your television And mm-hmm. just delivering it to you on a different device or via a different pipe platform. And we can, you know, we can do so much more now. And I think that's really the, the next step is building those interactive experiences. Yeah. And, and this is kind of also why I was picking your brain, because we know right now, being in the digital space, that digital is still smaller than linear or cable television, right? We know that the acceleration is there, but we're still pretty far from the revenue that you can get from linear. But that... From our perspective, at least working in the startup world, it feels like the digital transformation accelerated around coronavirus. So that's why I asked you the original question of how far do you think we are from shifting the mentality of selling the big linear package to broadcasters before focusing potentially on other digital opportunities? Because there are so many takeaways, user knowledge, you know, and, and, and additional um, ways of monetizing that audience. I think the key is going to be. You, you know, you, you want to have the live, the full live game readily available to folks to watch on the biggest screen available to them. And that that's always going to be really important. Now, the technology on how that gets delivered could be all sorts of different things. But then you also want to start to customize the experience. So if a fan comes in and says, you know, I only have 10 minutes and I want to watch the, the key moments of the match, how do I get that? Or, hey, I'm I'm on Twitter just scrolling and I get an alert that says, Hey, this game is in the last two minutes. It's going crazy. Can I 
click a button and pop in and and you know watch and something watch. in yeah. in that match. There's a new startup here in New York called Buzzer. Buzzer. Um, that's been really doing some some interesting things around that where you know they've been trying to enable this you know subscription based. You pay ninety nine cents and you can watch whatever the last five minutes of a game. Yeah. Um, or the penalty kicks or, or the, even for know, a GP like the five last uh, tenth laps or something like that for whatever sports. Yeah. Exactly. That's so. Yeah, that's been a long time coming too because you started working with also different partners, WSC to name them and having five-minute highlights on the platform of the clubs and then the 15-minute highlights for the different audiences. And I watch the five-minute highlights because we're in the, you know, in the rush of being in business and, you know, like I want the core highlights, but my parents watch the 15-minute highlights on my brother because they have more time and just like buzzer is the next step of that. Um, and also why I'm trying to understand how this is going how this is all going to be framed because on the other side i know that i can never watch my brother's games on being sport in france because they are overnight and more often than not they have the rights but not necessarily the channel to distribute it yeah no that's right and and so then the next step is how do we create more data around the video and then jb was asking mm -hmm. you know we we did a partnership um with second spectrum where they installed 12 tracking cameras in all of our stadiums And they are using computer vision and machine learning to basically take in that video and auto-create in real time deep data on the position of every player, the ball, the ref, at, you know, at any moment in the match. But the real magic of their system is then they take all of the data and they have an unbelievable analytical system that cuts up the game in all sorts of different ways. And so our coaches are using it because they can say, you know, Give me every time our team was under pressure and yeah. we lost the ball. I get the insights. Clips, yeah. There's the video and it's all ready. Our editorial staff is using it because it now allows them to go through an entire night of, of matches and say, give me all of the moments where, you know, somebody took on three guys and, and beat um, the guys off a dribble. We want to go talk about those moments uh, mm. on our show on Sunday night. And so they use it as a way of looking at all of the content and cutting it down because you're right. I mean, especially as the league continues to grow and grow and grow. I mean, we'll have 30 teams here before, before long. You know, there are very few people that can watch 15 soccer matches on a weekend um, mm. just from a you know, purely uh, <laughs> uh, number of hours in a day standpoint. <laughs> Yeah, but going to the data, to the data, and what you were saying as well on the platform for me is like something I would like to hear your your vision on is what, what not what's next, but thinking of the different platforms and where it will be streamed. Uh, we've seen like you mentioned Buzzer with Bo uh, that we know um, naming another startup which is French this time and not American, but that you know as well, which is called Immersive. Um, they could be using the data you would be collected to actually bring this kind of mixed reality or like immersive experiences based on the data provided by Second Spectrum. So for me, the question is, is how do you prioritize? Because we know as well, Live Light, which is more like engagement widgets and that you can get the insights from the fans with different polls or with different activations during the live game as well, or to try to retain them more. But What would be the priority from a MLS standpoint in terms of like being the most innovative league and always trying to look at what's next? So, yeah, how do you prioritize those things? Prioritization is really hard. Um, 
it is, you know, there at any given time, I'd say there are, you know, five, six, eight, ten inbound emails from different startups that, that mm. are looking to, to work <laughs> with us. Um, and frankly, we we've had to work with with third parties to help us um understand the space and to do surveys of the space because it's just impossible to keep your fingers on every aspect of the technology space and all of the various startups all in a very global marketplace. So we partnered with RGA on Global uh, Sports Venture Studio, which was helpful. Um, we've looked at other partnerships in the space. The most important thing I found is is a maybe a practical one where we every couple of months we need to set what our priorities are and then go find the technology that can help us address our priorities or our challenges or the things that we're trying to do versus responding to to yeah. inbound because so you are in the do, driving seats. You are in the right. driving all seat. All you do and you is choose. take meetings inbound. You you can take meetings all day long with really interesting startups, but you may not be able to ever actually do anything with it. If we can every so often say, "Here's the things that we're trying to accomplish. Here are the challenges we have. Now let's go try to find the startups that can help yeah. us achieve those things." That's just a much more productive way of us managing our business and actually getting stuff done. And not, I mean, the other thing is you don't want to waste startups' time, right? They have they have a lot going on in their world too. And so you don't want to just spin cycles to, to spin cycles. You're going to have every startup dream of the of the day they receive a message from Chris from the MLS because they know they'll have been targeted for a particular yeah. need. <laughs> But that's true. I mean, you know, right now we're spending a lot of time, for example, on production technology and thinking about how do you produce games in the cloud? What do automated cameras yeah. look like? What do um, next remote. generation, mm -hmm. yeah, remote cloud services look like? You know, how do you use data to help help power that? That's a that's a big area of focus for us. And so, yeah, we are spending a lot of time to to do interesting things. The other thing is, last year we launched a nationwide youth league called MLS Next, and mm -hmm. we really see that as an innovation testbed for us. Um, You know, we didn't get everywhere we wanted to be in 2020 because of the pandemic, but um, you know, we're holding the the championship playoffs uh, at the end of the month in Dallas, and you'll see us testing some things and and inviting some companies out to to showcase their wares, just again so that we can we can see what they're up to, take a look at the latest technology. We'll stream 25 matches on on the website. We'll use second spectrum data. We'll we use you know new cameras, those kind of things. And I think you'll see us going forward leveraging MLS Next really as that chance to try things out without having the pressure of it having to be, you know, yes, in a first team, first team yeah. game. So you would use it like your, not the playground, but your, your competitions where you could be a bit more like innovative because there is less risks towards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the different partners. That, that's That sounds like what a friend of mine did around the UEFA Innovation Hub on the UEFA Youth League. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed, quite a good one. But I, I like Chris reminding us of like being in the driving seat instead of just like compiling meetings all day and really seeing cool tech. But I think it's very much important for any kind of leagues or sports organization listening to us is like you need to have a full understanding of who you are, where you are, your demographics, what are your strategic objectives, and from there then you can press the button and say, okay, this is where we want to go. This is what we want to achieve. Let's screen, let's monitor what's on the market and let's test. We can fail, that's no problem, but we know where we want to be. 
And that's why you would be engaging with different startups rather than just saying, okay, we do innovation for the sake of doing innovation or just listening to startup or listening to them. Look, I would love nothing more than to spend all day, every day, <laughs> just listening to cool startups talk about you know what they're up to. I mean, I find it fascinating and, and you really could, right? It would be very easy to fill your entire calendar just with meetings with startups but at the end of the day we have have a real business we need to operate and so you know we we, practically speaking you you just have to be more directed in terms of um you know where are you going to spend your time and actually that's one of the things also i also see you know because we have kind of that role of trying to identify the right structures and the way i usually position it is i see three ways of for a startup to be picked one is pure innovation just creating the wow effect one is increasing revenue, and the last one would be saving on costs. Is there one of those aspects that you look at more than the other in terms of how you try to bring innovation? I, I, it, you know, that's that's a great question. I think it's usually some version of all three. Though um, so it's it's hard to to pick one versus the other. It, at the end of the day, revenue always wins, and. That's just that's the reality. We can try to do cool, interesting things till the cows come home, but at the end of the day, revenue is going to be king, and we have a we have a responsibility to our owners and our business to to generate as as much revenue as possible. The home run are those scenarios where you can create a better experience, and because it's a better experience, you have fans who spend more time on the on whatever the platform is. You have fans who really like it; they engage more. And because of that, then there's a really natural integration for sponsorship or subscription or whatever the business model is that then drives new revenue for for the league. It's often hard to do it the other way where you say, oh, we're just going to make new money on this. And then you roll something out and the fans don't care about it. And then you're left with you know either a bunch of investment or an unhappy sponsor or whatever it is. So it, it has to be authentic. It has to be organic. It has to really work with the fans, and then the revenue can come. But at the end of the day, revenue will will drive a lot of decision making. Yeah, uh, great answer. Uh, could not agree more as well from, from another organizations I've been working for. Um, the the other point, Chris, like you mentioned data, and just even now in your reply, I wanted to to pick up your brain a bit on data because it's a like it's a buzzword or. Everybody is talking about data and now the first party data and how a league can work in terms of like knowing better the fans or better insights, retain them more so that after you can create better partnership. And just like what you've just mentioned in terms of like the affiliation and having a better product so that the fans comes back, they engage more. And so then when you go back to your partners, uh, you can tell them, okay, this is what they're interested in, or maybe you should pick up this, this match or these players for such activations because your ROI will be better or whatever. But from your standpoint, because you've been at the beginning as well from the digital side of things, and I guess you're working very deeply on the CRM and on the, the fan data side of things. How do you build that? And how does this work together with the digital and the media partnerships you mentioned about? Like where where does that fall in? Is it just like a new revenue stream or something that you need to, to have to inform your strategy? Is it something that you are directly selling to partners uh, for activations? Where, where does data comes in for you? It, I guess at the highest level, 
it feels like we are at a bit of an inflection point. For the first 20 years or the last 20 years that I've been working in the space, it felt like the there was more and more and more data capture. There was more tracking of users. There was more ability to just aggregate information about users. And then, um, you know, the you would then use that information to whether it was sell ads or personalize experiences or, you know, sell sponsors, those kind of things. Um, and it feels like in the last two years, maybe 18 months, with some of the new privacy laws that have been passed, especially in Europe, with some of the changes Apple's made to their rules around apps and, and platforms, some of the upcoming changes that they announced around you know email tracking, it feels like we're on the precipice of a very different generation wow. where it is a lot more difficult to aggregate user information or fan information, um, especially from kind of just general cookie collection or web collection. So I think it's going to put then the onus on organizations to truly provide value for their um, fan bases and for their users in order to to capture or, or gather information. Some information we, we I mean we we collect. For example, if you buy a ticket from an MLS match, that information flows into our database. If you buy a jersey, that information flows into our database. And I think largely that inf- those information flows will continue. Because it's based on purchase, it's based on um, you know significant PII that you you basically have to give to in order to deliver a ticket or deliver a jersey, those kind of a thing. Um, and we'll continue to 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 invest in in those kind of data captures. But we've been talking a lot about spending more time on things like fan surveys or um, you know fan. Um, Letting our fans personalize, you know, actively the the website or the the mm. mobile app, uh, and putting more control in in their hands versus just using it ourselves, because we don't know that we can, you know, just rely on a cookie based system going forward and anymore. And that's really changing the way you have to think about a lot of this infrastructure. We do have a giant centralized database where you know we aggregate the league's data, the club's data. Um, MLS is a little different structure because we're a single entity, so we we operate a little differently than than some of the other leagues, but um, that and that will continue to to be a, you know a key focus for us. Um, and then on the the player side, I think we'll continue to aggregate more and more and more data to with the with the goal of helping make players better, helping give the players more um, perform you know, opportunities better. to perform yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay. I see. But one point you just mentioned, like, was like interested is in two, three years time, you, do you think fans can be able to, I mean, would you allow fans to actually be part of the product or be part of the news or the content that will be on your website? Or even if I'm thinking, because maybe website will be useless in two years time, think of like MLS voice or MLS bot, would you let the fans potentially reply or give their voice for, for the MLS kind of landing page or website or something like that? Is it, is it something you were alluding to or, or not necessarily? I think, um, not to, to dodge your question on that one, but I, think, <laughs> I, I don't know that I did look, there is a role for fans to play for sure. And we are actively looking at in all this new technology, 
you know, if we're providing the platform, are there things that the that we're basically providing tools that the fans can use to, you know, organize themselves or to talk okay. to one another, those kind of things. Okay. What I do think you're just edging into as well is the other big change that we're on the precipice of is for the last 20 years, digital technology has meant a website, an app, um, those kind of experiences. Mm-hmm. And it feels like if you're following along with kind of the coded releases that Google, Amazon, Apple, Amazon are, are are making, we're about to trend into this world of you know computing, whether it's voice, whether it's the you know watch on your wrist, whether it's you know the glasses you wear. Mm-hmm. That we are we are trending towards a next generation of computing, and we are now going to be challenged to deliver experiences in completely new ways to um, interact with those different platforms. Thus far, it hasn't made a ton of sense to spend, you know, a lot of time worrying about Siri integration or Alexa integration, Mm. because yes, you could ask Alexa the score, but is that something you're really going to do other than kind of as a curiosity versus, you know, just picking up your phone and getting the alert that, you know, your favorite team scored a goal. Um, That said in the future, if you could, tell Alexa to put the game on TV or, you know, there's some sort of augmented reality experience where you can, you know, look at sports betting or look at sports data and it's just coming into your glasses. You know, that's, that's an interesting world to, to, to play in. Like everybody, we've done some VR tests, but I think VR in the old world is nowhere near what, what we're talking about, you know, coming in the future, a couple of years. Yeah, it is to 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 bounce on what you just said. It, it is crazy to see the war between Siri and Alexa, and how very cautious both Amazon and Apple are about all those voiceover uh, related topics. Um, for, for me, Chris, on on this actually, I, I wanted to ask you like, how does a league and MLS is quite a? I mean, you have the resources, you have the finances, but how do you prepare, or how do you best prepare for? this future uh last time on the last podcast we had someone talking about um from partnership to sponsorship uh, from sponsorship to partnership and we we were discussing a bit the gap between sometimes some of the partners which are heavily relying on data and that are investing a lot on data because this is how they they make their roy and their and their business is built on while for rights holders uh, and leagues traditionally this is not their bread and butter uh, th- this comes on top to selling the the live rights more or less um, and so how does a league like MLS is preparing for okay we see the next gen of computing coming up we see the next gen of like how this will impact potentially the viewership or the way we will engage with the sports and any kind of forms of of, of entertainment at large in the coming years how do we make sure we're in the best position to remain relevant and to best have the best value proposition for the partners, for, for everyone involved? I think there are two key components that we spend a lot of time on. One is building really deep relationships with the Apples, Amazons of the world, because it's, in, it's important for us to be on the ground floor have direct lines of communication with them, understand what they're they're up to, you know, have their help as they roll out products with beta testing and, the, and those kind of things. And so it's, you know, it's 
boots on the ground in Silicon Valley, walking up and down, talking to the different companies. You know, we're in normal times, we're out there several times a year, just making sure, you know, even at our most senior levels with the commissioner on down that they're connected and, and they, they know what's happening. So that's, that's phase one. And, and I think that's critically important. And then phase two is making sure you have the right building blocks. And for us, the right building blocks are making sure you have really robust video sources that can be cut up in all sorts of different ways, depending on whatever the platform or device is. Making sure you have really good data, especially on your games, that can drive a lot of these experiences and you can use to, to build all sorts of things. Mm. And then third, remaining flexible and knowing that you know, you're going to try some stuff and it'll work. You'll try some stuff and it won't work. But at the end of the day, you, you, know, you have to put out um, a variety of different products. And again, you know, to go back to MLS Next, that's why was one of the reasons we're so excited there because it gives us just a, a test bed that, that has you know, so little risk to us to, to try stuff. Okay. Uh, love it. I definitely love it. I had two questions still on the back of my mind, uh, Chris. A bit more like it's more related to the, to the headlines or the recent news. It would be around the streaming war. And so the uh, AT&T of this world and discovery merger. So what, just like very briefly, I mean, no need for three hours explanation or anything, but how, da, how does it, yeah, how is it seen from New York? Like how does MLS and other leagues and other sports organizations and even the owners are, are looking at this? Is it is it an opportunity? Is it how... Yeah, I think it, you know, we see it as generally right now a positive. Um, we see more and more companies investing in the sport of soccer, um, whether it's Disney, Fox, Paramount, mm. NBC, Comcast, Discovery, uh, Warner. There, you know, there, there's a lot of different players now interested in live soccer rights, and that's a, that's a benefit for the whole industry, whether it's MLS or, or, or otherwise. The thing that I think hasn't yet been truly sorted through is how many of these platforms are truly North American platforms and how many of them will truly exist as global players with you know, significant direct-to-consumer audiences around the world. Disney, for sure, has ambition to have their products all over the place. Netflix, obviously, is very global. Apple, Amazon, those companies are very clearly... Uh, global companies. I think the the jury's still out on the you know Warner Discovery, the Paramount, the NBC Comcast. Right now, those are still very net North American focused in many cases. Though Discovery does have uh, Eurosport. Um, and NBC Comcast, NBC did acquire Sky also in Europe, which true. was a big move uh, like from our perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think look that that's the big question. Um, I think what you are seeing is scale is going to right the the number of players over time will start to come down a little bit because you're going to need to yeah. scale um, significantly. To acquire the rights and also like to distribute and to go D2C. But with this new like kind of Prime or Disney Plus, I mean, all these new platforms and, and we know, for instance, Netflix is not for, they don't want to fight with the license. That That's not what they're interested in. Uh, but... To which extent do you see this shift from these big telcos to potentially new players? Is is it good in a way, or is it what what does it change for rights holders? And yeah, go ahead. 
what is clear is live news and live sports still have significant value as really? perhaps the only two things that really drive significant live augment or aggregated audiences at the same time. And so, you know, that, that to me is the foundational point that's really valuable. The other thing is, you know, we, we, you mentioned Netflix. Yeah, Netflix may not be in for live sports, but I think we probably all watch the Netflix F1 series mm-hmm. and it's tremendous. And I guarantee you it's driving viewership of their live product. So that's, really? that's not to say that Netflix doesn't have a role in the sports media ecosystem. It may not be broadcasting a game, but maybe there's other ways to experience the, you know, these sports uh, on yeah. an ongoing basis in the future. That's what I mean, I would love my my dream would be that Netflix series is like in real time, right? Like you're getting who wouldn't love to see, you know, a recap of Azerbaijan like this week in their off week while, you know, we're waiting for the next race to happen because there has to be some juicy stuff going on behind the scenes in some of those races. Mm, Clearly. So you would. Yeah, that was a bit what I was alluding to. with my questions in terms of how do you build your product with different partners and different forms of content around the live, but clearly the, the behind the scenes is something uh, uh, clearly important. The other questions I had for you was, you mentioned like the third pillar is all the news things coming up. What What is, okay, we know about NFTs. Uh, I mean, we, we, we are not going to do a big podcast on it, but it's more like, how do you see those things? Is it more like for for a league to try to understand as they pop out in terms of opportunity uh, in relation to the overall strategy and vision that you, you presented at the beginning? Or is it something that you try to anticipate a bit more, like also some technologies around, I know the blockchain, the 5G, all these kind of technologies which are more of an enabler for you for strategic vision? So. I was just curious on on these different news around NFTs and not even crypto because crypto is might not be as relevant for sports organizations as what can be for a blockchain or other type of technology. So I was just wondering how how do you prepare to that or what what's your take on this? So the the two big I wouldn't even say future tech things. I would say the kind of two big things that we're just focused on. Um, executing right now are sports betting in North America. Old mm. old news to you With guys in Europe, but yeah. but very very new here in in the states and and very big and, and growing. Big opportunity, yeah. And then you know, yes, the the talking point has been NFT, but I think the real the more interesting lens is just underlying blockchain technology. And are there good use cases for blockchain? in and around the sports world. I think collectibles, mementos will be one pillar and that could be an NFT and that could look like all sorts of different things. It could be tied to fantasy, it could be tied to, you know, FIFA the video game, it could be tied to, you know, whatever other people dream up over time, but that's that's an interesting space and I think you'll continue to see execution there. But then the blockchain itself could be used. I mean, we we have Teams starting to think about testing blockchain technology for their core ticketing uh, as a really interesting opportunity. We have folks talking about blockchain for player transfers and is there a better player transfer system based on on a blockchain? Um, you know, you, crypto may not have direct use cases, but it may. 
And I think crypto may be one of the hottest sponsorship categories um, in sports over the next several years with crypto companies, exchanges, et cetera, sponsoring teams, putting you know names on jerseys, those kind of things. So I think there are big opportunities across the blockchain space um, mm. over the coming years. Okay, cool. Uh, because I know we, we, we don't have that much time left. I just wanted, I think you alluded to it at the beginning of the podcast. It was around how the World Cup in 1994 actually helped into like, not turning you, but being part of you being a soccer fan. Uh, I wanted to, 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 yeah, to pick up your brain a little bit on the, um, 2026 uh, World Cup opportunity and how the MLS is actually positioning itself or how, how, how are you preparing? I mean, we are five years ahead of this. Uh, there is some matches in, in Mexico and in Canada, but most of the matches, most of the games will be played in the United States. Uh, what, yeah, how, how do you guys prepare for this? Is it on your roadmap? What, what, what do you want to achieve through this? Well, just think about it from a purely business context. How often in, in business <laughs> do you know, you know, five years in advance that there's going to be some massive event that greatly accelerates your business? I mean, you, just, and, and you never have millions that. of fans, <laughs> right? You never have that foresight capability. So that's the, that's the most amazing thing. And, and it has, um, you know, implications throughout our whole business. If you think about the cycles for various deals, whether it's media deals, sponsorship deals, you know, do you end those deals before the tournament? Do you extend it beyond the tournament? Everyone knows that there's going to be this giant acceleration. And so it, it, it brings really interesting dynamics. The key for us is making sure that when all of that acceleration comes and, you know, it lo it's looking more and more like the U.S. will have a really quality team by that time with this young generation of players, many of which have been developed in, in our league. Um, you know, what, what can we do to take full advantage, whether that's capturing data from fans who are interested, whether that's showcasing players, whether that's um, showcasing our facilities, our team brands, activating on a local market. Um, you know, there's just so many different facets to this, to say nothing of executing a really awesome experience, you know, throughout the US, Canada, and Mexico. The other big piece for us is we see great opportunity to continue to deepen our partnership between U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And so we have something called the League's Cup today, which is MLS versus League MX. Um, you know, we have something called Campeones Cup, which is our champion versus their champion. It's not a stretch to think that, you know, that will only deepen as we get more uh, closer and closer to, um, you know, the, the tournament. And that's, that's a really exciting opportunity. If you think about just where these two leagues could could go in context of global football, actually, that's one thing I wanted to jump piggyback once again, putting my, a bit of my personal uh, experience through my brother, where while he was so he's born in 1986 and around the uh, under 20s, the big target was that by 2010, I think I believe it was U.S. soccer would be you know soccer would be a major sport in the U.S. and it feels like it was by trying to push um, the Sports performance at the forefront and it feels like now it's actually the generation where 
sports is pretty well aligned with the actual audience that you were talking about at the beginning of the of the podcast, which is really Generation Z being more and more interested in football and soccer rather than in baseball, like in the previous generation. So it also feels like, and I don't know to what extent that was thought about before acquiring the rights or winning the winning the the, the World Cup 2026. But it feels like the alignment is now at the right place between your audience and your potential sports performance. Well, I mean, look, the league is 25 years old. That's that's the amazing thing to think about, right? Like in 94, when we had the last World Cup, there literally was not a first division league in the United States. MLS launched two years after that after that World Cup. And so it takes time to build up your fan base, to build up all the facilities, to build up all of the infrastructure. Our academy systems are just really starting to pay dividends on the development of really high quality prospects. Mm. Doesn't mean there weren't some earlier, but really, if you look over the last two or three years, you're seeing this wave of talent coming in, and that's true on the fan base side too. Think about somebody who is, you know, is now kind of squarely in Gen Z. They may not have been born when the league first started, right? And they're yeah. just starting to. Now they've basically grown up with MLS, and so as they come to, you know, into adulthood, mm-hmm. they can look around and say, "What's what's the right experience for me?" And the experience of going to an MLS game is very different than the experience of going to another sporting event. Um, you know, you guys take for granted the the fan experience, but you know, if you go walk into one of our stadiums and the supporters are singing and chanting and jumping and waving flags and lighting flares for 90 yeah, minutes. Completely that different. is very yeah. different than going to a baseball game where the you know scoreboard tells you when to clap or when to stand up or when to sit down. I mean, it's just <laughs> to say nothing of the fact that, you know, a soccer game is 90 minutes, two hours. You are done, out, back, you know, on with your day. And some of the other sports, it's three, four hours. It, you know, you it's your entire day. And that's just a very different experience. And so um, – You know, the other thing I'd say is I think Gen Z in the United States anyway is much more globally minded. Again, thanks to the internet, they have connections with people all over the world. They see things all over the world. And so part of the attraction of the sport of soccer is you you can follow this beautiful global game, right? You have yeah. your the, your favorite player may go play in Europe or you, you, your team may buy a great young player from South America. You know, the national team is going to play in a World Cup and all of that connects and is part of being mm-hmm. a soccer fan. So, yeah, you love your lo- local club, but you love the fact that it's connected to the global game and it's always on and there's always stuff happening. And I think that really appeals to the the more globally minded, more you know connected Gen Z than perhaps previous generations who didn't have all those connections cross border. To not to wrap up, but maybe to conclude on this, uh, Chris is like, Based on all what you've just said, is what where would you see the MLS in three four years? Like in an ideal world, like what would be the best achievement? Is is it to be closer to European football, or is it is it to you mentioned MLB or other leagues in North America? Uh, is it to be cl- I mean to to be closer to them in terms of audiences, in terms of like viewership, in terms of awareness? What what would be If you had like one or two key stuffs, like in an ideal world, uh, prior to the World Cup or just around the World Cup, I think we will have more of our teams truly mattering in their local markets, really becoming key components of their their city sporting scene. Um, I would say about half our teams really truly matter today. 
And I think, you know, in, in four or five years, you, you'll see more and more of them truly mattering. And I think the, the level of play will just continue to increase and increase and increase. And it's truly, I mean, it, it is a very compelling competition. We average more goals uh, per game than any other league in the world. We have more game score, goals scored late than any other league in the world. You know, we've had 10 different champions in the last 15 years. That is just a more compelling competition than many of the, the other leagues where, mm. at least in Europe, you know, you see the same two or three teams win every, every, every year. year. And so, you know, like I'll, I'll take those odds. And I think over time, um, you know, people are going to be surprised by just how compelling and how fun it is to, to watch MLS. And, you know, if, if you get a chance to go to one of our stadiums, you know, go out to Atlanta, go out to Seattle, go out to LAFC, Miami, Austin. I did. Um, Even you know, you know, it's, it's remarkable. Toronto, when they get back into, you know, into yep. Canada, for sure. Um, they're, they're remarkable. And so I, I think that that really is a selling point that you get to come participate uh, and have a, you know, a really freaking good time. <laughs> That's that's a fucking good way to end the podcast. I love it. I love it, Chris. That that's a that's a good one. Uh, no, really. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. A lot of insights. I need to digest myself as well. Uh, taking few notes uh, during the podcast, actually. So uh, thank you very much for sharing those. Um, it's super fun to talk to you guys. Sam, great yeah. to meet you. Um, I, I feel like we could probably talk for half a day just on stuff we're all working on and thinking about, you know, that's and, what I was going to say. And we should do that at some point, right? Like we should find time to get together on that side of the Atlantic or this side of the Atlantic as things open up, you know, spend an afternoon, have a couple of beers or a glass of wine or whatever, and just talk about what's going on in our worlds because we're, we're thinking about a lot of the same things. Yeah. I have to say it was truly a blast and, you know, like the cherry on the cake offering to have a like exchange session with a couple of beers that was the like cherry on the cake and anytime we will go to new york chris once once we can again or anytime you want to move to come to paris like just let us know we'll, we'll make that happen for sure i was gonna say paris is not a hard ask i, I love that place <laughs> <laughs> i did just get offered to to fly to ibiza for some random tech conference in the fall so Oh, that, did you? I, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> Those guys reached out to me to do VR. And I was like, oh, <laughs> but I, I heard about sure. it. And I thought that, that it, it was quite appealing <laughs> during COVID. Yeah, exactly. That sounds, that's not a bad trip. Le Corner.